So if you have your Bible, let's go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and today we're going to be talking about the fifth of the uh, seven deadly sins, and I'm going to talk today about the giant of gluttony. Now when you hear the word gluttony, what do you think about? Like, so a lot of things may come up into our, in our minds about, well, um, I think about somebody who just constantly is overeating, or I think about somebody who's morbidly obese, or I, for me, I go back to uh, Stacy's Buffet, which, by the way, still exists in Heath, Ohio on 30th Street. Many, many years ago, and I came in Stacy's Buffet for the first time, and, and I'll never forget coming through the buffet line, and uh, there was a couple that was sitting at the table who had obviously been there for a long, long time. They had three plates that were so piled, piled high with chicken bones. I, I'd never seen that many chicken bones in all my life. I think they devoured 12, 13 chickens uh, in one setting. So uh, that's, that's what I kind of think about. So we, we have a lot of things that come up in our minds when we think about the word gluttony. But I want to expand your horizon a bit because it's not just about overeating, okay? It's not just about drinking too much. It really goes well beyond that. The Bible speaks about this issue in several places, one of which is found in Ezekiel chapter 16. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, there's an interesting verse that is tagged to uh, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, most people think that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin of homosexuality, but that's not what is mentioned. In fact, there are three sins that are mentioned by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16 chapter chapter 16, verse 49, they were pride, laziness, and gluttony. Those are three of the seven deadly sins that we've already studied, right? Now, certainly there was a lost issue because of the fact of homosexuality. So in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were committing four out of the seven deadly sins that led to their ultimate destruction. Um, so there's another crazy text in Proverbs chapter 23 where Solomon says, when you sit down to eat, <laughs> this is crazy, when you sit down to eat with the ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. If you are a man given to appetite, do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. Now what Solomon is not saying is you sit down and take a knife and slit your throat. What he's saying in a very poetic language type of way is that do not allow yourself to be controlled by a meal, even if it's a great meal by a great king. Don't let something so rule over you that you can't say no to it. Because really, this is the heart of gluttony. It is an issue of overindulgence. It is a lack of self-control in our lives. And it can be overindulgence in all kinds of areas where we overconsume, where we, we are over-consumerism or overindulgence. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, no matter what we do, whether we eat, drink, whatever we're doing, we're to do it for the glory of God. So as we look at this topic of gluttony, immediately uh, it's a very sensitive topic and people get, you know, um, Kind of like, oh, I, don't, I really don't want to listen to this. Listen, it is not fair to judge a person by what you see on the outside. Just because somebody is overweight does not mean they're gluttonous. My mother was a very short, petite woman all of her life until diabetes began to overtake her. She was put on insulin, put on steroids like prednisone. And with the side effect of that is, is weight gain that she could not control. Uh, just because you see somebody who is thin does not mean they're not guilty of gluttony. 
because they might be guilty of gluttony because, again, they are consumed with food. And, and so they look to food for comfort, and they look to food for emotional healing, and they look to food for a variety of different reasons or many other things. It's not, again, limited just to food. Gluttony occurs when eating and drinking or other things are of greater interest, greater purpose, greater meaning, um, greater pleasure and concern than obeying God. And so it's turning to something for comfort and recreation and satisfaction. You're, you're trying to meet an emotional need apart from the Lord, right? You're looking to something else to meet that emotional need you have at that moment in time. Remember, Jesus himself was being accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Well, certainly that was not the case, but the reason the accusations were made against him is because people looking at it from the outside. Jesus spent a lot of time having meals with people. He found that some of the most important evangelistic moments he had in his ministry were putting his feet under a table and eating and dining with people who needed him as the Savior and Lord. And as a result of that, people came to the assumption, well, he's just a glutton. He's just a, you know, a, a drunkard. No, he was Baptist. I'm telling you, this is what Baptists do. We eat. We love to eat. It's all about, in fact, the Baptist symbol is the casserole dish because this is what we do. I remember when I pastored in Alabama, um, the ladies there, bless the heart, I was very young, and, and the women there, most of them would have been uh, like the age of my grandmother. They decided that I was too skinny, they were going to fatten me up. I'll tell you what, they gave me more homemade biscuits, cake, pies, sticky bun. I mean, they just lavished me with food after food. What you don't understand, what they didn't understand is I have a very fast metabolism. And so I can consume, a, I can eat you under the table even yet today and not gain weight. I know you hate me for that. I'm sorry, but that's just the metabolism God gave me. So they tried all, with all their might for six years to fatten me up and I never worked. It just didn't work. So excessive dieting is the flip side of the coin called gluttony. You know, um, compulsive dieters are just about, are just as concerned about food as those who are not. I mean, it's amazing that in America that obesity has become a problem, and so now we, we spend a lot of time eating, and then we spend billions of dollars every, every year on diet programs, right? Dieting and trying to lose weight. We eat, we try to lose weight, we eat, try to lose weight. But think about this person who is, um, who's anorexic. Think about the person who's bulimic. See, food is just as much concern for them as it is for the rest of us, if not more so, because these are control issues, control factors, and they're trying to control an aspect of their life where there is deep hurt and there is deep pain, and so they are obsessed over the issue of food, and it's a control issue, because this is the antidote to gluttony is self-control. Self-control, remember, is a fruit of the what? The Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, it's a fruit of the Spirit, and it's the idea of allowing sound judgment to control our desires and our appetites, our thoughts, our emotions, um, our actions. When it comes to this issue of gluttony, we don't have self-control, right? We, we, we struggle with this. I mean, in the area of eating, we struggle. We know that over half of our country has an, an obese problem. Why is that? Well, there's many reasons why that is. 
Do you know that the average caloric intake of those around the world, other than America, is like a fraction of what it is here? For example, in most countries, their daily caloric intake is 435 calories a day. The average American consumes 3,573 calories a day. We put away over 120 pounds of sugar a year. Teenagers, it's estimated, put away over 400 pounds of sugar a year. But we see, when you're young, you can get away with it, right? But when you get older, it all begins to catch up because our metabolism changes as we get older and so on and so forth. It is an American issue and struggle, but people struggle with food and beverage for many different reasons. For some of them, they just never learned how to eat right. You know, if you're like me and you grew up poor, you were probably fed a lot of processed foods, right? It was cheaper, it was easier, and so you just never really learned how to eat in a healthy way. For many people, it's a means by which we use food. There's a reason why we call it comfort food, because we're trying to comfort ourselves. We are stressed out. We're an emotional wreck. We're depressed. You know, there's a lot of emotions that drive our habits as we consume things. And so that is a temporary fix. The problem is it is not a solution. So what I want to talk to you about and look at is the battle between David and Goliath David is fighting a giant, and gluttony can be a giant in your life. There are a lot of things that can be a giant. It can be fear, it can be gluttony, it can be lust, it can be a thousand different things. So the principles I want to share with you today out of that battle between David and Goliath are principles that would apply to any giant you're facing, but I want to apply them in particular to this issue of gluttony, which simply means I'm overindulging. And again, you can overindulge in what you eat, in what you drink, in what you entertain yourself with, and what you, there's a, a lot of different things. We'll talk about those as we go along. But the key is, how do I learn self-control? How do I utilize this fruit of the Spirit in this war that I'm battling, or this battle that I'm having on a daily basis, this skirmish? So you'll recall in 1 Samuel chapter 17, let me just set up the scenario here, is that Saul is king over Israel. Remember, Saul is the very first king Israel had. They, they desired a king, wanted a king. God didn't want them to have a king, but they thought they had to have a king like all the other countries. And so as a result, they would get in skirmishes and wars with, uh, with uh, various nations. And so they were constantly fighting with the Philistines. That was, a, that was a given. There was always wars and skirmishes going on there. The problem is the Philistines had a very well-trained army. And they were masters at iron, which means they had all the cool war toys. They had things like chariots and javelins and spears and um, swords and shields. And when you contrast that to Saul's army, I mean, he has a, a um, commander-in-chief, Abner, and they put together this army, but they're made up of like shepherds and fishermen and agriculturalists, and they really weren't that skilled at war, nor did they have the cool war toys that the Philistines have. So they find themselves at, at, in a battle with the Philistines, and most of you are familiar with this story. And so you, David is the youngest 
uh, of the sons, and but until, until Benjamin came along, uh, or um, not Benjamin, David's the youngest of all of his brothers, and um, he, he's sent by his dad to take food to his brothers. Three of his brothers are part of Saul's army. They're out here in the valley, and so he comes upon the scene. You've got the armies of Israel sitting on this side, and the armies of the Philistines sitting on this side. There's a valley in between them, and for 40 days, this mammoth giant warrior named Goliath comes out into the valley with his sword bearer, his shield bearer, and he taunts and he ridicules and he blasphemes the name of God and he's taunting the armies of Israel and it constantly says, I mean, he's, the, he's the, a great trash talker, right? So he's coming out trash talking them every day for 40 days and it says that the armies of Israel are glued to the hillside. They're fearful. They are, qui- they are shaking in their boots, literally. And so this is the scenario that David walks up upon. So let's look at this in verse 4 of chapter 17. I'm just going to highlight some of this. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He's nine feet tall, over nine feet tall. Do you know how tall? That's like, that's a giant, man. I mean, you ever walked up? Okay, for the very first time, I went to a Cavaliers basketball game, professional basketball game. And I walked out on the floor and these guys who, who are like six, seven to seven foot walk by you. I mean, I'm not a very tall guy. So I'm like, I, I'm like in the land of giants here. I can't even imagine n- over nine feet tall. His armor is so, so humongous and heavy. I mean, it weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds. This is the size of Goliath. And it says, his shield bearer went ahead of him. In verse 7, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do, you, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? You are, and you, are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down here to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I kill him and kill and but if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I mean, this is like, whoa. I, you know, nobody's stepping out on the field. Nobody's taking on Goliath. This giant is so formidable, it appears to them at this moment in their life, they got no future because then nobody's going to go out on the, on, the, on the battlefield with this guy. And if somebody does get up the gumption and the nerve to do it, they're not going to make it. And therefore, we're going to become slaves to the Philistines. So the, if, in their mind, they have no future. In their mind, there's no escape. In their mind, there's no overcoming this giant. And sometimes for some of you, that's the way gluttony is, is that gluttony has has corralled you into a corner and has created so much fear and angst and anxiety in your life, you're thinking to yourself, I want to overcome this giant. I want to have victory on the battlefield in this area of my life, but I just see no way out. It is just too big. It is too monstrous. I can't do this. So how did David, who's this scrawny little teenager, do what the armies of Israel could not do. Here's the secret, and this is what we need to latch on to. Number one, 
is you have to prepare for battle by gaining a proper perspective. You prepare for battle by gaining a proper perspective. Although everyone else stood back in fear, David put things in perspective and his motive was not the reward that was being offered to whoever it is that fought Goliath. You recall when David comes on the battlefield, he brings his little sack lunch to his brothers, like that was going to impress them. Uh, He inquires, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who's defying the very God of Israel? And it says in verse 26, David asked the men near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of, of God? And they repeated, what, 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 what was the reward, right? The king was offering what? Great wealth, free taxes, and his daughter in marriage. Those were the three rewards he was offering up to anyone who would step out on the field. Now, you might want to check out his daughter before you made that decision. <laughs> and so... David goes on to say in verse, um, let's go to verse 36. I'm just setting the context. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Remember, David comes to King Saul, says, I'll take him on. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine, verse 45, David said to the Philistine, now he's out on the battlefield facing Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel All those gathered here will know that it is not by my sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Did you catch what David's saying? What was David's motive? Tax abatement? Daughter in marriage? Great wealth and and treasures? No. David knew that God's glory was on the line here. David was about to prove to every single person, whether in the Israeli army or the Philistine army, there is one God and he is the God of Israel. He is the God of creation and he is the one who will give me the victory. In other words, David stepped onto the field and said, listen, I'm going to give God my eyes. I'm going to give him my hands. I'm going to give him my ears, my mind, my feet, my body, and God himself will use my physical body in order to prove to the world that he is the one and only true God. His body was the vehicle through which God would operate. But it was his faith and trust in the covenant promises of God to the nation of Israel that caused him to stand up and move out onto the battlefield. I want to give you a new view in preparation for your battle. Gluttony is an issue of the body. The Bible speaks a lot about the body 
and the importance of it. Sometimes we have a very low view of the physical body, and a part of the reason is because of Greek culture that is spilled over into the Western mindset, and the Greeks viewed the body as something that was a prison, that your soul was imprisoned in your body, so it really didn't matter what you did with your body because it was going to die one day, and it really had no use, no value, You were looking forward to the day that your soul would escape your body. Therefore, do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter. It is not considered a sinful thing. So in 1 and 2 Corinthians, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just hold your place there where you are in 1 Samuel. And here's what Paul says about our body. This is so essential. It kind of helps set up the perspective Paul is dealing with the human body in the context of the Corinthian culture. And the Corinthian culture simply said this, pleasure is everything. Pleasure your body in any way, any form, any fashion you want because pleasure rules. It is the ultimate life, man. Just pleasure yourself with whatever you want to pleasure yourself with. So here's what Paul said. Chapter 6, verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. What was Paul saying? I'm going to have self-control. I'm not going to let my appetite overrule me. I'm not going to let my sexuality overrule me. I'm not going to let my, you know, drinking overrule me. I'm not going to allow anything to have control over me. I'm going to learn how to master self-control in these areas. So he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That was kind of like a slogan in the Corinthian empire. And, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that He who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two shall become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality and all other sins that a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins um, against his own body. Do, here's the key verses, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your, your body. And so again, um, those in Corinth, uh, hedonism was their, a part of their lifestyle. It was all about pleasuring the body with whatever, drink, sex, food, entertainment, whatever they could get their hands on to bring ultimate pleasure to the body. They threw caution to the wind, no control, no self-control whatsoever. That didn't even cross their radar because they believed that the body was sinful in and of itself. And therefore it was housing in prison, my soul. And so just eat, drink, and be merry because one day you're going to die and your soul will finally escape. This is, this is the context to which Paul is writing. And so hedonism, getting pleasure for my body, we do the same thing. We spend trillions of dollars in America every single year trying to make ourselves happy and pleasure ourselves with food and sex and various forms of entertainment. 
entertainment, media, travel, drugs, drink, you name it, we indulge in it. Because we're looking for, to fill a hole that is deep within us. And the problem is, these things all come to the same end. Pain. Why? Because it leaves you empty. It leaves you void. God never, ever created these things as a means to which to give us pleasure that would pleasure us and fill the hole, fill the void within us that would last forever. Listen, just to be clear, Food, sex, entertainment is not sinful in and of itself. In fact, these are potential good gifts that God has given to us for our pleasure. But if I try to fill the void, if I'm trying to indulge myself to the point that I've, I've just reached like this, this ultimate pleasure that I'm never going to lack again and I'm never going to feel lonely again and I'm, I'm never going to feel like I'm lacking something again, these things will not do it for you, nor will it for me. And so what Paul is saying is simply this to the church at Corinth and to us. Your body serves a much higher purpose than just your pleasure. God wants you to experience pleasure, don't get me wrong. But your body serves a much, much higher purpose than just your pleasure. And here's four ways that happens. Number one, your body is a holy place. He says in verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is God's place. It's his holy place. You, you have a body, but not just a body. The Bible says you are created spirit, soul, and body, and it is the spirit of God that indwells us as followers of Jesus Christ. The spirit seeks to live himself through my soul, my mind, will, and emotions, and then that is expressed through this physical body that I have. So when you and I are talking to one another, for example, I'm talking, but communication is only about 4% listening and 96% of what? Nonverbal communication. That's how we communicate through our bodies. And so God has given us this body he calls now what? His, his temple. It's the place that he resides it's the place where God dwells within us. In Corinth, there were many temples that were dedicated to many different gods, and the Lord God had a temple also in Jerusalem. It was to be a place of prayer, it was to be a place of worship and sacrifice and celebration, and all these things took place in that temple, and the temples built in Corinth uh, reminded the inhabitants in that city that their gods or goddesses had plans and purposes for their lives, just as God built a temple in Jerusalem to be a reminder that there is a God who loves them, there is a God who has created them, there is a God who has a very specific plan and purpose for their lives, and therefore, because our bodies are literally the temple housing the Spirit of God, we we should very, be very careful to take care of our bodies. This is why Jesus, on two separate occasions, at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry, he cleansed the temple. Why? He didn't cleanse it with a bucket and a sponge. He cleansed it with a whip, and he turned over the table of the money changers because they were misusing the temple for their own pleasure and for their own purposes. And God says, this is not the reason why I put the temple here. It's not just for my own pleasure. It's not just for my own purposes. God indwells our body as a temple for his pleasure and for his purposes. 
And here's the ironic thing. When you start living for God's pleasures and for God's purposes, your, your purpose and your pleasure gets absolutely fully met. But when I shove that aside and I say, you know what? Mm, I'm doing my own thing, God. I'm going to find my own purpose. I'm going to find my own pleasure. And you go diving into that gluttonous mindset. It just never it just never works out. And so we, we view our body as God's temple means that we are raising the viewpoint of our life. The second thing he says is your body has a holy person. It is the temple of what? The Holy Spirit. In the ancient temples, they believed in the pagan uh, gods and goddesses. They would always erect a statue or some sort of idol that represented their god or goddess. That this is the representation and that that God or goddess would actually indwell that statue or that idol that they have erected. Do you know that in God's temple, God said to the nation of Israel, do not erect an idol. Do not put up statues. There's no way you can confine me to a statue or to an idol. I'm much bigger than, remember, God is spirit. He's not He's not um, limited to a, a body. And so he says in the second commandment, you shall create no image of me. And therefore, what the Israelites did know is that the presence of God dwelt where? In the Holy of Holies. They called it Kavad. The presence of God is there. God has designed you after the pattern of the temple and the tabernacle that was the outer court, the inner court, the holy of holies. The outer court is our body. The inner court is our soul. And the holy of holies is our spirit where the spirit of God literally dwells inside of us. Everywhere I go, I carry the presence of God. Everything I engage in, I'm dragging God in, in it with me, the Spirit of God in it with me. Therefore, the Bible says, be very careful. You do not treat this temple in a way that will grieve or quench the Spirit of God who is riding, residing inside of you. You ever tried to get away with a sin that, you know, you're like behind closed doors? Ain't nobody going to know. You know right, who's right there with you? The Holy Spirit. If he's residing in you, you, you can't get rid of him. Like you don't pick him up on Sunday and bring him to church and leave him here, pick him back up when you come back next Sunday. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19, Paul made this very interesting statement. He says, whose God is their stomach and who set their mind on earthly things? In other words, they worship their appetites and were controlled by their appetites they don't control their appetites. Their appetites control them. And so life was all about personal pleasure. The Greek school of thought was called Epicureanism. Epicurus had followers known as the Epicureans. And this is what they believed. They just believed that life is just one pleasure after another. It's just do whatever you want to do, what, however you want to do it. And everything has become your source of, of comfort and so this is the way Satan tempts us, right? He tempts, he tempts us in many different ways. He tempted Jesus with food. Remember in the, the wilderness? I mean, he says, hey, command these stones to be turned to bread. And Jesus says, no, I, I don't, I'm not doing that. I, we, man has to live by more than bread alone. It's by the, every word that proceeds out of the, the mouth of God. And so Satan tempts people with food, but the stomach might be full, but your heart is empty. 
And this was, is what hedonism, this is what gluttony will do to you. you. You might be filled, you're trying to fill this hole with food or drink or sex or status or wealth or experiences, but the hole just gets larger and more empty over time. I find it very interesting that Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter of God. He wants to be your comforter not these other things that you're seeking to bring comfort where there's hurt and where you need healing. Number three, your body has a hefty price. Paul says that you have been bought with a price. And that price was the precious blood of Jesus. You know, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. But sometimes we cheapen it because our mindset is, well, you know, this is just my thing. This is just what I do. And I want you to think of your body as a city you know, in ancient times, walls were built around the city for protection, and they had gates so that they could monitor what's coming in and out of the city. Do you know that God, this temple, has been given an eye gate, it's been given ear gates, it's been given a mouth gate, and so what God would say is, listen, be very, very careful what comes through your eyes. It's the gate that goes into your mind. Listen, be very careful about what you listen to, very careful about how you speak, because these are the gates that you are allowing to infiltrate into the temple that's having a... A, a, a permanent um, bearing upon how you see life and how you approach life. And, and God says, watch, watch what you look at and watch what you listen to and be careful how, how you speak. As Paul reminds us in Romans 12:1, our bodies are to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. New perspective, because you see gluttony can have can devalue and lower the quality of your life. We know that obesity, for example, has all kinds of health hazards. Type 2 diabetes, um, high blood pressure, unhealthy cholesterol levels, heart disease, stroke, certain cancers, gallstones, infertility. 300,000 people a year in America die because of obesity-related health issues. Not to mention the emotional scarring of depression, low self-esteem, and all the other factors. All I'm trying to get you to see is this is a very serious sin that we deal with. It is a giant that we face on a day-in and day-out basis in many different areas of our lives. And if we don't come to grips with it and we don't prepare for the battle, we'll just come up with one excuse as to a, uh, another as to why we don't even need to fight the battle. In fact, most people don't fight the battle because gluttony is probably the most socially acceptable sin of all the seven deadly sins. Your body also has a heavenly purpose. He says in verse 20, you're bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. What does it mean to honor God with your body? It means your mouth can preach the gospel. Your hands can help the needy. Your feet can go to the lonely. Your ears can listen to the brokenhearted. Your lips can speak to those who are oppressed. In other words, you can use your body as an instrument of God as he speaks into the hearts and the lives of others. Your body's now the vehicle. Do you know when Jesus started his ministry, he, started, he was born in Nazareth, but he set up his ministry headquarters in Capernaum? This is exactly what the Holy Spirit has done. He has set up God's ministry headquarters in your life, in your body. Our bodies are the vehicles through which the Holy Spirit operates just as the Spirit would operate through David to take out Goliath, you and I allow the Holy Spirit to operate through us that we might minister to those who are around us. 
So when I start thinking in my life, life doesn't become about my pleasure, it becomes about his purposes, his purposes. So like David, you have to decide who you're going to glorify, who you're going to honor, yourself or, or the Lord. So that's the first step. The second one is this, human solutions have little value. It's an issue of the mind. Gluttony can be as intimidating as a giant. I've heard it. Uh, you've said it. I've said it. I've tried all the diets. No, none of them work. I tried to resist desserts. But man, when the chocolate desserts come out, I lose all sense of willpower right there. I've cut down on my drinking, but two glasses of wine or three with dinner, what's, what's that going to hurt? Listen, when I was diagnosed with diabetes, I had to learn very rapidly how to say no to a lot of things. Now, I could have been my, my mother. My mother was a non-compliant diabetic. She was like most diabetics. Well, you know, you got to live a little, and so I'll just shoot some more insulin and eat whatever I want, do whatever I want. It never works. It just doesn't work that way. And as a result, people start losing limbs, and they, they start having health issues, and diabetes attacks your, your weakest organ, typically the heart or the kidneys. Um, and so there's health issues. And my mother died at the age of 72 because she just was so non-compliant. I mean, we go to the house and there'd be cookies and cakes and all this stuff all over the place. Mom, why, what are you doing with all this stuff? Well, you know, it's for the grandkids. Your grandchildren come here one time a year. What do you mean it's for the grandkids? Well, you got, you know, you got to live a little. Okay. So I'm very sensitive to that, and, and so I, I know how hard it is to say no to those things, that, that, that it can be a giant. I mean, it's just, it's hard, and, and so when gluttony takes hold of us, it's, it primarily takes hold of our minds. We just don't think we can overcome it, and we allow ourselves to get into this mental state of, well, I, I've tried it before, and it just doesn't work, and I can't overcome this, and, 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 and so we, we convinced ourselves that we cannot do it. Listen, David had an opportunity opportunity to watch the Goliath show for himself, okay? He saw Goliath come out. He's taunting everybody. He's taunting the, the armies, and he's listening to all of his trash talking, and he saw a man who graduated from war school who had, you know, probably um, excelled in like assault and battery. I mean, this guy's just mammoth in size. He's got all this equipment, and he's the best Philistine or, you know, warrior they've got. He's the baddest of the bad. And J David chose not to respond to this giant as every other Israelite had responded up to this point by staying glued to the hillside. David chose to walk out onto the battlefield. Why? He said it in his statement. He says, I'm walking out there because I know that God is with me, that God will empower me, that God will enable me to overcome the giant that is in front of me. It was a mindset that caused him to walk out on the field in faith. It's the same mindset you must have that God is with you. You're not in this battle alone. You can overcome this area of self-indulgence where you seem to have a lack of self-control. And you must have an equal knowing that God is with you in your struggle and he will help you without resolve. You're going to fall back into the same patterns over and over and over again. We've talked about the mind and the importance of the mind. I mean, I know nothing breaks the heart, my heart when my grandson says, hey, 
let's do this. And the very first words out of his mouth is, I can't do it. I can't do it. Yes, you can do it. Yes, just try. You can do it. And sometimes we get into the same mindset as adults. I can't do it. I've tried before. It's failed in the past. It's going to fail in the future. Therefore, I no, I can't. Yes, you can. Now, David's brothers, very quickly, when David says, I'm going out there, very quickly tried to get him to shut up. So would you just come down here to make fun of us? You come down here to mock us? Hey, why don't you just pack up your little, your, your little snack and, and go back to shepherding? Leave us alone. You ever had somebody discourage you? you? They just simply said, you don't really have a problem with this. Everybody's gluttonous at time. You don't need to be so hard on yourself. If you don't overindulge, then people will be unappreciative. And you're going to be the party pooper. And you're going to be self-righteous, looked upon as being self-righteous. Have a little fun in life. And to become self-controlled, you have to be able to, listen, to become self-controlled, you have to be able to rule over your feelings. As long as you allow your feelings to govern your life and control your life, you will never overcome gluttony. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. This is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. But you have to, it's faith versus feelings. This is the way it was. What did the Israelite army doing? They're, they're back there. They're plastered up against the side of the, the mountain because they are what? Fearful. Not faith. Not faith-filled. They are very uh, fear-filled. And so, therefore, they just remain intact, plastered up against this mountain, and they're refusing to go out on the battlefield. Listen, advertisements aim at our emotions. If they can convince our feelings that we need something, we're probably going to buy it, right? Advertisers know this. Your enemy, Satan, knows this. If he can get you in the right position, man, I mean, it's, there's no accident when you walk into a car dealership, man. They've got those cars all shiny and buffed up and put them on a mat and kind of make them look glisten. And they're like, wow. And you, you start over towards that and the salesman comes up to you and kind and gentle. And usually the first words of, out of his mouth, are, what are you looking for? And, and I said, well, I don't know. I think I like this. And he says, then the next word is always, what kind of payment are you looking for? Because it doesn't matter what you say, he's going to get you into that payment. Whether you have to pay for it for four years or 40 years, he doesn't care. As long as he can get you in that car. And what the next thing he wants to do is, let's take her for a test drive. Because now you get in it, you get the new car smell. And now you're just like, oh, I look good in this. I don't know, this is looking good. And before you know it, you're sitting in his office. And he knows that if he can get you to sit down in that seat, that is 90% guarantee that he's just made a sale. This is the way life is, right? People fall in and out of love, have good and bad days, healthy and unhealthy activities, largely depending upon how they feel. Students decide whether or not they're going to study that night or not because, oh, I don't feel like studying, you know, and I, I know what it's like, you know, to exercise. It's like, do I get up in the, you know, in the morning and say, man, I just can't wait to get to the gym and exercise. No, I don't, I don't feel that way at all. I, I force myself in the car. I force myself to the parking lot. I force myself into the gym and then I exercise and always feel glad that I did. Temptation is all about our feelings. How you think affects how you feel, so you must take every thought captive unto Christ. It's an issue of the mind, and you've got to bring the right weapons. What's the first thing that King Saul did when David said, I'm taking on Goliath? 
First he said, you can't do it. Negative Andy there. Can't do it. Then what did, what did David get? Well, he gave him a little rehearsal about, well, you know, as a shepherd, God delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion. What God did there, he can do here. And what's the next thing Saul tried to do? He gave David his armor. And he put his armor on David. And David put it on. He said, this is not going to work. This is not me. So what Saul was offering to David was a human solution to a spiritual problem. And David immediately took it off, went out, grabbed his spear, his sling, and five smooth stones. And he went into battle. And why? Because David understood (laughs) that though he chose to fight Goliath with stones instead of a sword... There will be other times he would use a sword, but whether a stone or a sword, here's what David knew. I've practiced this in private. I think I can do this. I've killed lions. I've killed bears with stones. I think I can take out Goliath. So the first, the first weapon you need in your warfare is the sword of the spirit, right? This is what Ephesians chapter six says, that sport, sword of the spirit, which is the word of what? God it's not by stone, sword, spear that God saves us, but through his spiritual power. David had weapons, his stones, but look again what David said. He says um, in verse 45, you come to me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of army of Israel's. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. Today I will give your carcass to the Philist, uh, the Philistines' army to the birds of the air. The whole world will know that God is Israel. Watch this. All those gathered there will know that it is not by my sword. It's not by my stones. It's not by my spear. It is by what? The Lord. The power of the Lord. The battle is the Lord. He's the one who will empower me to take the, out my, my enemy. What is it that David knew about the word of God? Because it is the key. Listen, the word you receive from God in scripture or the word you receive from his Holy Spirit is always key in battle. Here's what David knew. He knew what the scripture said about the covenant relationship between God and Israel, that there was no enemy who could take that away from them if they walked faithfully after the Lord. Nobody, no enemy would overcome them. God promised their protection. He promised his presence wherever they were. And so we see from David that being familiar with God's history, with humanity, creates a readiness and a willingness to be a part of what God is doing in the here and now. Look, when you read the Psalms, you'll notice how many times David goes back over his life and he recognizes how God's word would play a key role in his overcoming of his enemies. The second weapon you need is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness. As we walk in the Spirit, stay in step with the Spirit, we begin to walk in our new identity. We begin to act more like our Father. We come to demonstrate His, his uh, character. Remember, it's the Spirit of God in, the, in this temple. And he, listen, the Spirit uses what? He uses your hands. He uses your feet. He uses your mind. He uses your ears, your eyes, your tongue as a means by which He's going to communicate Himself to the world around you. Which means uh, Satan's 
um, kingdom offers fear and hatred and despair and impatience and cruelty and betrayal and greed and pride. And so as image bearers of the Holy Spirit, where we see anger, we step in with what? We, set, so we step in with love and forgiveness. Where we see uh, greed, we step in with self-control and generosity. Where we see evil, we step in with goodness and truth. As we become more like Jesus, we ourselves become a weapon against the negative fruit of the enemy's kingdom. Why? Because you're allowing God to use your body in such a manner. Number two is you need to, three is a vision of the spirit. How can we look at a giant, how we look at a giant determines our response. Listen, David looked at Goliath. He didn't see an impossible giant. He just saw a bigger God. One of the reasons why giants remain in families generation after generation is because nobody in the family can envision life without that giant. This is why Israel, most of the Israelites died out in the wilderness wanderings because they, they could not envision them going into the land God promised them because it was filled with what? Giants. Had they had the vision of what God had promised, they would have said, like Joshua and Caleb, hey, let's go. God's giving us the promised land. But instead, they say, oh, no, 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 we can't do it. It's not going to happen. We can't envision it. We're just little grasshoppers in the eyes of these giants. Do you see the mindset of David? He comes at Goliath knowing it is the power and the strength of the Lord. He has the sword of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, as the Spirit of God has come upon him for this moment in time, and he has the vision. Notice what he said to Goliath. He gave Goliath the vision. This is exactly what God's going to do to you. I'm going to lop off your head, and I'm going to carry it into Jerusalem, which is exactly what he does. So that brings us to point number four. You celebrate your past victories, right? Goliath's head was assigned to all of Israel. They were free from the giant, of Philist, the giant Philistine. Look, we all have past victories. They're what I call signposts. Get a journal, get a notebook, do something. Please make sure you list out your signposts, the areas where God has given you victory because it is a tremendous source of inspiration knowing that God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. I can trust the Lord. I can trust the Lord. I can follow his word. I can lean in on his promises and one after the other so that when you face your next giant, he doesn't look nearly as big. And here's the last one. Anticipate your giant's return. <laughs> David never had to fight Goliath again, but he did have to fight the Philistines many times. Listen, your enemy, Satan, is going to come at you with all kinds of giants. Now, here's the problem. We tend to focus on our desires where Jesus calls us to focus on him, the bread of life. Do you know what I've noticed on college campuses when I was on a college campus and I visit many college campuses? That just a few weeks into that college experience, couples start matching up and they get enamored with one another. Now all of a sudden, these well-educated kids, bright kids, now all of a sudden they don't have an appetite anymore. They can't sleep anymore. All you can think about is being together. And, and it's just like, oh, they're just so focused and so enamored with one another. I mean, it's just like life now revolves around that human being. Might I submit to you that this is one of the key elements in overcoming your giant? What 
is that we become so obsessed, we become so preoccupied with Jesus that we fall so much in love with him that everything else begins to pair and just um, pales in comparison. In John 6, Jesus said to those whom he had earlier fed through the loaves and fish, 5,000, he said to them, I am the bread of life. You're coming, you're just wanting more miracles. I'm the bread of life. I'm telling you, if you eat, if, if you partake in me, whoever comes to me, he says, will never grow hungry, and whoever believes in me will never become thirsty again. Do you believe this? And apparently in verse 66, many did not, because it says in the very next verse, and many people stopped following. Jesus. So in closing, I submit the question, is he enough for you? You have a decision to make every day of your life. You will either fill your life pursuing one pleasure after another, or you'll fill your soul with Jesus on a daily basis and learn how to slay the giant of gluttony because the giant of gluttony will always always, always leave you wanting more. Only Jesus can bring ultimate satisfaction. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, um, God, that you have so, um, you're so passionate about us that that you sent Jesus into the world to die for us so that you might take up residence within us. That our human bodies can be used as instruments that bring honor and glory to you through the things that we do, through the ways that we love, through the ways that we serve, through the ways that we worship, through the ways that we share the gospel. Lord, we know that there's no human solution that can cure this sense of overindulgence because, Lord, we know it's a battle of the mind. It's a battle of the heart. And so we choose this day, O oh God, that from this day forward we will take every thought captive and bring it in obedience to Christ. Let's let him weigh in on what is happening in my life at that moment in time when I am an emotional wreck rather than turning to these things that, that I seek to overindulge myself in, looking for comfort and looking for healing and looking for purpose in life, Lord, that we will turn to, to Christ, that we will bring to the battlefield these weapons, the, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and just allow the, the Holy Spirit as we choose by an act of our will to, to walk after Him and to follow Him and to allow Him to have his will and his way through surrender in our lives that the fruit of the spirit, this self-control, God will enable us to stand against our enemy. May your Holy Spirit grant us the vision of what it means to walk in the freedom of Christ. Father, we thank you for the past victories. We know that our giants are going to return. But Lord, we thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So, Lord, may we not shy away from the battlefield, but like David, understand and know and realize that, Lord, the battle is yours. We walk in victory. 
We don't fight for victory. We're already walking in victory. We just need to learn how to claim the victory that you've already secured for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we want to be good stewards of our bodies. We want to live as long and healthy of a life as we can as we serve you and as we serve others around us. Father, we know that age will eventually catch up and these bodies will begin wasting away. But Father, we we want to be as steward conscious as we can as we serve you and represent you to the world around us. So Father, I pray, um, Lord, for victory in the hearts and the lives of your people here today. God, that we will take these principles and make them applicable to every giant that we face in life, knowing that Jesus has been victorious on our behalf and that we rest in the victory that he has secured for us. Mm. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Before we stand and sing, um, if you're here this morning and you've never turned your heart and your life over to Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life. This is the purpose for which he came. He came to be a sacrifice. He came to pay the debt of our sin before a holy God so that you and I might receive forgiveness for our sins. Sins are very serious, but as long as you don't take them serious, you probably don't think God takes them serious, but he does. So he demonstrated his love for us, the seriousness of of how he views sin by while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that through him we might become the sons and daughters of God, that our bodies might become his temple where God takes up residence within us. We become his headquarters through which he operates in the world around us and in our lives personally. So if you've never taken that step of faith, I pray that you would take that step of faith today. I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. I'll be here at the front um, to answer any questions that you may have. So Lord, um, may, may this final song, oh God, just be music to your ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.